Hey pals, and welcome to your True Crime Tuesday podcast episode. So there are a couple of orders of business to attend to before we start, which is weird because it's only the third episode and I already have orders of business. Um, First of all, if you hear me scratching, I don't know if you can hear it, but if you do, I'm sorry. I have like 45 mosquito bites all over my legs, and this is why I hate summer. Because people always ask me, Jana, why don't you like summer? It is sunny and beautiful and wonderful. And I tell you, because mosquitoes, sweat, and frizzy hair. I do not like summer. <laughs> Fall is the superior season. Okay, so aside from that, I just realized I was scratching and that you'd probably be able to hear it. So I'm going to try to stop that. Put like little mittens on. Um, so first order of business. There is a Patreon page. Uh now, the content on there is not, like, patron-exclusive content. It's just everything I've written or recorded or done so far in one cohesive place. That was the only reason why I started that. Um, there are, well, there's not now, but there will be patron-exclusive stuff, but that's not why I made the Patreon to begin with. It's just something that kind of happened from it. If people want it, cool. If not, cool. I mean, it's there to do or it's not, you know? Um, I... I put it all on Patreon so I could get my stuff in one spot for the time being, and then I will sort out CabernetAndTrueCrime.com because that's not sorted out, and I've been, you know, meaning to do that for several months now. So, until that gets done, um, it's all on Patreon. It'll stay on Patreon, but then it'll also be on Cabernet and True Crime for, you know, just to have it in two places so you can do whatever you want with it. Yes. Um, but with that saying, there are two two patron shout-outs to go out today, which is just absolutely incredible. And, like, each time I got the notification on my phone, I screamed. So that's really cool. Um, Rachel and Candace, thank you so much for, you know, reminding me why I do this, and it makes me really happy. Um, second order of business is a little bit of some corrections, which I mentioned on the Instagram post Last week, I covered Robert Hansen, and I don't know what happened. I usually listen to my podcast a couple times before I post them just to make sure, and I had listened to it, hated it, pretty much re-recorded most of it, and then when I went to go update the mistake I found, it wouldn't let me do it. So that's annoying. But so I just figured, you know what, I'd still post it instead of having to re-record the whole entire thing the day I was supposed to post it because that just seems like a headache and a half. So here are my corrections. And, you know, sometimes I'll skip around a page and this was just absolutely nonsensical and I have, I can't even blame wine for it because I wasn't drinking. Um, halfway through the podcast, I say that they did not, well, I said they found the bodies of Sherry Morrow and Paula Golding and then later at the end I said they didn't. I don't know <laughs> what happened what happened there. Um, so just to clarify, these were notes that I had that I apparently just forgot to read. So Sherry Morrow was 23 years old. They found her on September 12th, 1982. She'd been missing for almost a year. Her, bodies, her body was found by ha hunters in a shallow grave on the banks of the Nick River. She was also a topless dancer, and she'd be shot in the back three times. But based on the car... And, or, sorry... Based on the cartridges around the scene, she was shot with a .223 Ruger Mini-14 mini hunting rifle. Say that five times fast. Um, 
But the interesting thing about when they found her body was that there were no bullet holes in her clothing, only on her body, meaning that she had been shot while naked, then redressed. And then Paula Golding was found 9-2-1983, which um, she was found three months after Cindy Paulson escaped. And her grave was also found on the banks of the Nick River. She was ID'd as another topless dancer. She was 17 years old. Um, she was murdered in the same way as Sherry Morrow, and her clothes had also been put on after she died. So it was the discovery of these bodies that really helped um, catch Robert Hansen, and the way they were um, found also kind of helped determine how sick he was at hunting down his victims. Like, clearly they were found shot out in that environment and then redressed, making it not so much like somebody who got murdered and then thrown there. It was a lot more sick than it actually was. So those are my corrections, and I'm, you know, happy to get those out because it was really, really bothering me that I had messed up because I usually try to do my research a little bit more thoroughly than that. Um, topic number three, this has been a really wild week for true crime in Northeast Ohio. I don't know what's in the water. Um, so I happened to be watching the news. I never watched the news. And during this news presentation, I was like, holy crap, all these crazy things are happening right now. So um, on June 5th, an Ohio doctor was charged with 25 counts of murder and painkiller overdose deaths. So his name was Dr. William Hustle. He was apparently administering potentially fatal doses of painkillers to his patients in Columbus. Um, Many of his patients that died were seriously ill to begin with. So I'm still assuming there's stuff coming out on that. Um, the California killer who confessed to 90 murders has been indicted in two Ohio deaths. That happened on June 3rd. Um, Samuel Little, which I'm sure if you have any, any idea of the true crime community, you've heard about Sam Little and this bananas case that's been going on. But he confessed to five killings in Ohio, including three in the Cleveland area. Um, Cuyahoga County's cold case unit was able to identify two of the three victims. So they were 21-year-old Mary Jo Payton, who was found in 1984, and 32-year-old Rose Evans in 1991. So he's 78 years old now. These are very old cases, and he's just now admitting to them. And then, craziest of all, there were two bodies found in Fairview Park on June 5th. Um, so if you're not from this area, you don't know, but Fairview Park and like the Rocky River Reservation of the Cuyahoga Metro Parks, like the Cleveland Metro Parks are, it's a decent area. It's a very, um, you know, not even remote. It's the Metro Parks is the biggest green part of Cleveland. It's this massive forest area where it has like bridle runs and trails and, lakes and fishing spots it's really beautiful and um apparently Catherine brown was 33 and carnell sledge 40 were found um in the rocky river reservation which is part of the cleveland metro parks the medical examiner said that both victims had been shot in the head but sledge had been shot multiple times so these weren't just found you know deep in the woods apparently they were found there's a spot where you can run there's a path like a paved path where you can run in the metro parks and he was found very close to a bench and she was found kind of into in the rocky river uh insane they don't really have anything on this yet but both are considered homicides but there's nothing else on it yet um but it's believed to be an isolated incident it's still horrifying so <laughs> stay out of Rocky River Reservation, I guess. I knew the Metro Parks freaked me out. I'd never run in there alone. I would never run anywhere alone, but that is that. 
So now on to who I researched for you guys and who I'm really excited to talk about, Delphine LaLaurie. So yeah, if that's a surprise to you, it, you know, it probably won't be because I'll probably put her name in the description. I haven't written that yet. We'll see. And I don't know the name. If you haven't noticed, I don't name the titles until I go back and re-listen to this and I try to think for something silly that I said that was kind of dumb at the time and then make the title out of that. So I don't even know what this will be called by tomorrow. So that'll be fun. It's always a little game. Um, so Delphine LaLaurie. So if you watched American Horror Story, especially American Horror Story Coven, which is the best season, um, one of the main characters in it is Kathy Bates playing Delphine LaLaurie. Loosely playing. That's who she plays, but it's not, it doesn't look anything like her. And I, I actually want to go back and rewatch now just to see how close they got it, which is kind of the side effect of doing this. Um, you know, so in that season, which first of all, I have a, a cat named Fiona from Jessica Lang in that season. So just to say how much I liked this episode and this season of the show, um, Kathy Bates played high society Creole socialite um, in 1830s New Orleans. So she was she was depicted as this nefarious serial killer who tortured and murdered her black slaves. Um, which is pretty true to the story I'm about to tell you, but it may not be as simple as that. I think Delphine had a little more... She's more evil than they painted her to be. I guess less theatrically evil. More down-to-the-bones evil. We'll get there. So in the show, she's portrayed as a racist, etc., and her relationship and humor with Jessica Lange's character, Fiona, my cat, is really it's really interesting to watch like the two characters have a great relationship with each other not great as in their friends but great as in like it's fun it's entertaining um so yeah if you've seen the show you know who i'm talking about and if not you're about to so marie delphine mccarty was born in new orleans on march 19th 1787 and i've seen 1775 that i don't think that checks out. I've seen that two other places, but they didn't have any kind of sighting to it. And with the day that she died and the age that she stated at the day she died, this date makes more sense. And it had a citation. So I'm going with it. Um, so March 19th, 1787, stick into it. She was one of five children. Her father was Louis Bartholomew de McCarty, and they call him Louis B later on. And I really like that. So we're going to call her dad Louis B. Um, Louis B's dad brought her family to New Orleans from Ireland around 1730 during the French colonial period. So we're going to go down a history sidebar because I got stuck in this history sidebar and you're going to come down it with me. So the French colonial period is a time from 1682 to six or to 1803 ish, where the United States was still under French control. The area originally uncovered the drainage area of the expanse Mississippi River, so it went all the way to the Great Lakes, to the Gulf of Mexico, and it spread from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains. So this was a big area, and basically smack dab in the middle, well not smack dab in the middle, but on the easter side of the middle of the United States. So the area was split into two halves, Upper and Lower Louisiana, named after Louis the Fourteenth, which I had the Roman numerals, and I had to write it out in a number next to it because I cannot read Roman numerals. <laughs> So, Lower Louisiana would eventually become 
the states of Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and obviously Louisiana, which is where New Orleans is, which is where Delphine LaLaurie lived. Cool. So Louis B., our boy Louis B., was married to um, a widow, and they were both prominent in the area's European Creole community. So also, down another sidebar, the term Creole was used originally by French settlers to distinguish persons born in Louisiana from those born in another country or somewhere else. So these were true back in the day, Creoles. And it means native-born, and it eventually became used to describe Louisiana-born people of full European descent. So the commonly accepted definition of a Louisiana Creole today is a person descended from ancestors in Louisiana before the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. So she and her family were all true Louisianian, Louisianian yep, Creoles, and that kind of held them in a higher state in the society like they were true creoles and that made them the higher society so to take this and actually so in this study that i this rabbit hole of creole the definition of creole in the louisiana purchase that i went down and i almost went down another sidebar of describing like the louisiana purchase and then i was like what am i even what am i even researching at this point so i had to had to rein it back in um so Last sidebar, because this was kind of interesting, there was a group of girls called the Casket Girls, which is not as dark as you'd want it to be, which I was a little bit disappointed about, thinking that it was going to end up being, like, darker, but it wasn't. Um, But it's still an interesting story. So, they were these girls called the Casket Girls, um, because in the beginning of trying to colonize the area, it was predominantly male-populated, obviously, the soldiers who had come over um, were all male. So the soldiers were placed there as indentured servants, and they were required to stay in Louisiana for a fixed length of time, determined by a contract, to pay back the cost of service and board. So to increase the population of this area, the government recruited young French women known as filles a la cassette, or casket girls, for their suitcases and cases they, they brought with them. They yeah, so they went to the colony to wed the soldiers, and the king himself financed the dowries for each girl. And uh, there's a specific story of the Belaine brides, known for the ship that they came over on, that was filled with 90 women, all of whom were most likely sex workers or felons, and that that boat came over in 1721. This has nothing to do with Delphine Lorie, by the way, it's just a weird sidebar and a cool thing that I thought was interesting. Um, so apparently this event, this event inspired a 1731 novel by Abbey Provost called Manon Lascoute. I don't know how to say that, um, which is apparently also an opera. So the Casket Girls, that's pretty interesting if you like American history or, you know, Southern Creole French history. Interesting. But sorry, we're back. We're <laughs> Sidebar nation. We're back. Um, so... Delphine's uncle by marriage was Esteban Rodriguez Miro. He was the governor of the Spanish-American provinces provinces of Louisiana and Florida from 1785 to 1791. And her cousin, Augustin de Marcardi, was the mayor of New Orleans from 1815 to 1820. So basically what I'm trying to say is based on her heritage and where she was born and who she was from, Delphine and her family were kind of a big deal. So that's a long-worded way to say that. So, Delphine marries for the first time on June 11th, 1800. 
And to save you from doing some quick math, she was 13 years old. She married Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo, who was a high-ranking Spanish royal officer. I'm butchering all these names. I'm sorry. I know how to read French. I don't know how to pronounce any of it, and I don't know how to say or read any kind of Spanish. So, listen. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to stick through this together. So, she and her hubby, Don Ramon, were married in the St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans, um, 1800. In the 1760s, Louisiana had become a Spanish colony when France was defeated by the Great Britain, defeated by the Great by Great Britain in the Seven Years' War. Also tried to go down that rabbit hole, I will not. In 1804, so they've been married for 14 years, she's 17 years old. In 1804, after the American acquisition of what was then again another French territory, which I don't know why I worded it like that, I'm talking about the Louisiana Purchase. Um... Yeah. Why did I write this? This doesn't make any sense at all. Um, oh, to put it into perspective at the time, I just really like history, so sorry when I do these historical ones, I get kind of weird sidebar. This is going to happen more than once. Um, so welcome to Jana's True Crime History Podcast. So to put it into perspective, 1804, Louisiana Purchase just happened. France was ruled by good old Napoleon at that time. And Thomas Jefferson was the president of the United States. So, the, the clarification, I wrote, damn it, I wrote clarification for Jana later. Napoleon had essentially gotten the area back and then fear of losing it again sold it to Thomas Jefferson for $15 million. There's the short story of the Louisiana Purchase, I guess. Um, so, this was important because Don Ramon was appointed to position of Consul General for Spain in the Territory of Orleans. So, in 1804, that same year that all that kind of went down, Delphine and her hubby traveled to Spain. Delphine gives birth to her daughter, Marie Borgia Delphine Lopez E. Angulo, which, hell of a name, they called her Borquetta. Um, so, she had the baby on, on the way to Spain. Don Ramon dies before they even reach Madrid. So, my question, though, and I'm going to have several questions later on coming up in a minute... So, she went by Borgia Delphine, or she had Delphine in her name. Was Delphine Lalori going by Delphine at that time, or was she still going by Marie? And is it even weirder, because she named her daughter basically Marine Del Marie Delphine, which is Marie Delphine Lalori's name. Did she name her child after herself? Did she call her Junior? I have questions now, but it's, it's going to get weirder. Just hold on to your hats. In June of 1808, so four years later, Delphine remarries. It seems like a respectable amount of time to wait. His name is Jean Blanc. He's a prominent banker, merchant, and legislator, and a lawyer. So he's a jack of all trades. He buys a house for her, which eventually becomes known as the Villa Blanc. The couple have four children together. So here are my questions. She has four children with this man, and their names are... Marie-Louise Pauline, Louise-Marie-Laure, Marie-Louise-Jean, and Jean-Pierre-Paulin-Blanc. What the hell? Had she never heard of any other names besides her own and, like, a couple other ones? What? 
how do you so you know when you're a parent or a dog owner or you know anybody in general and you go to say somebody's name really quick and you know your parent does the hey who you who and goes down the list of names before they can remember who they're trying to call you know this has happened to you it happens to everybody um how does that go where she's like marie louise marie louise jean jean marie everybody's names are the same they're just in a different order that's just insanity to me that seems confusing I don't know. I wrote, hold up a damn second, what the hell, Delphine? Yep. So that husband dies in 1816. So they, they pop out all these kids with all the same names in eight years. So on June 25th, 1825, Delphine gets married again, this time to a physician. His name is Leonard Louis Nicolas Lalaurie. So that's how we, we end up with the name Lalaurie at the end. Apparently, he was much younger than she was, but I'm not sure what that means. They just state that he was younger. They don't tell you how old he was. So, he was younger. In 1831, Delphine buys a property at 1140 Royal Street, which she handled completely on her own with little involvement from her husband. Two years later, she had a two-story mansion built, um, and it even had slave quarters. She lived there with her husband and her two of her daughters, which I'm not sure who. They don't specify. Maybe the youngest. Did she know their names? Because I don't. And even if I, even if I could find who they lived with, you'd think it was a typo. What if you were confused as to which children she picked to live with her? I don't know. It seems confusing. Um, so she maintained a high role in New Orleans society because of her family and her name and her stature. Um, she had a son with Louis named Samuel Arthur Clarence Lalaurie. And I, he was a son, so I'm not sure where he was at that time. I don't know where her children are, but two of them are with her. So, the Lorries have several black slaves and slave quarters attached to the mansion. And during the period from 1831 to 1834, people are mixed on how she treats her slaves. So, Harriet Martineau, which you're going to hear a lot about her... She is often cited as the world's first female sociologist. She'd visited New Orleans in 1836 and described Lori's slaves as particularly haggard and wretched, but in public appearances, Delphine was seen as being generally polite to black people and concerned for her slaves' health. So in 1819 and 1832, she freed two of her slaves, Jean-Louis and Da Vinci, Da Vinci, maybe, respectively. But <clears throat> Martineau is like this massive gossip queen. So she wrote this big, I don't want to call it a letter, maybe like a short novella about her time in New Orleans. And she had a lot to say about La Laurie and, you know, her practices. So I'm sorry that you're going to hear a lot about her in the next couple minutes. So um, apparently, in Martineau's tales, a local lawyer was dispatched to the home to remind the couple of the laws for the upkeep of slaves, but during that time saw no evidence of wrongdoing. Rumors, still being spread by Martineau's writing, said that the neighbors had seen a 12-year-old slave, her name was Leah, fall to her death from the roof of the mansion whilst trying to avoid punishment from Delphine. So there's this whole backstory to it, which there it's literally just a fable. There's no merit to any of this. But the fable goes that Leah was brushing Delphine's hair and hit a snag, and Delphine grabbed a whip and chased her to, essentially, her death. So she was running from Delphine with a whip and fell from the rooftop of this building. 
This incident, according to Martineau, led to an investigation in which Leonard and Delphine are found guilty of illegal cruelty and as punishment are forced to forfeit nine slaves. Those slaves, however, end up back to the Royal Street house um, because basically other people in Delphine's family had rebought the slaves and then just gave them back to Delphine. So they, they <laughs> were forced to be given away. And I mean, obviously it wasn't illegal to to do that at the time. You were allowed to just pass them around. So at the time, yeah, there was legally nothing they could do about it if she physically repurchased them or took them back from somebody. Great system. So they end up back there and people had also had these rumors, which ended up trying to be true, but said that Delphine kept her cook chained to the kitchen stove and beat her daughters when they tried to feed or, you know, help in any way any of the slaves. So, this kind of leads us to a head of the the big event that kind of unveils everything. So, on April 10th, 1834, a fire breaks out in the mansion, which started in the kitchen. When police and the fire marshal arrived, they found the cook this poor 70-year-old woman chained to the stove by her ankle. She said later that she set the fire as a suicide attempt because she was scared of being punished, telling police that slaves who went up to the highest level of the mansion never came back. As reported in the newspaper the very next day, bystanders who were trying to help rescue who they could in the fire attempted to enter slave quarters to be sure that everyone had gotten out safe. After trying to get the keys from Delphine, who refused, the bystanders broke down the door, and what they saw was absolutely horrific. There were, quote, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other, and it appeared that some had been there for months. Also inside were, quote, a negress wearing an iron collar, end quote, and, quote, an old Negro woman who had received very deep wound on her head and was too weak and t- to be able to walk. The man who had found these women asked Leonard about their treatment, to which, in so many words, Leonard told him to mind his old, own damn business, but obviously much more old-fashioned and much more Southern, I'm assuming. Our gossip queen, Martineau, Stated in 1836, her slaves were emaciated, showed signs of being flayed with a whip, and were bound in restrictive postures. They they wore spiked collars that kept their head in static positions. There's also nothing to back that up, aside from Martineau writing it herself, um, which in 1836, she wasn't even in New Orleans anymore. And everything that had happened was long, long over, so... I mean, it could be true. It might not be true. I don't know. So when bystanders found the abused slaves and everything became more than gossip, a mob attacked the Lullery residence and, quote, demolished and destroyed everything they could get their hands on. And by the time a sheriff arrived, their damage was so bad, there was hardly anything remaining but the walls. So they ripped this place to the ground and destroyed everything they could. I think this is because there was a lot of, you know... This was an interesting time for America, an interesting time for slavery, and a lot of things were coming to a cusp, and I think people were upset with the way that it was rumored Delphine and Leonard were treating their slaves, and honestly, you know, Delphine gets all the brunt of this here, and I have no idea what happens to Leonard after any of this, but he was absolutely part of this too. There's no way that Delphine was was doing 
what she was doing without, you know, him being aware of it, I would assume. you. I mean, <laughs> unless she was kind of like a Belle Guinness powerhouse type where she kind of kept him in charge. There's not a lot about their relationship, honestly. But him telling the, you know, bystanders to mind their own damn business is kind of telling as to his stance on where they were. So maybe he just didn't care that maybe, maybe Delphine did act alone and he just kind of let it happen. I don't know. In the show of American Horror Story, they were saying that she was trying to make these pastes out of their pancreases to rub on her face to keep her young, to keep her beautiful. I don't know if that's any of that is even true. I think most of that's folklore and also kind of creates a plot for American Horror Story and like what goes on in that. I don't know if any of that's true. I actually really don't think any of that's true. But I mean, it's kind of just taking it one step further. I guess that makes sense. To keep like a mostly true story, but kind of, you know, jazz it up for theater, I guess. We'll go with that. Sorry. So, um, yes. The Lollary, the Lot Lurie slaves were taken to the jail where they were available for public viewing, which is weird. Um, the New Orleans Bee, which is a newspaper at the time, reported that, um, by 412, which was two days after the fire, 4,000 people had come to the jail to view the slaves to, quote, convince themselves of their suffering. I, that was a weird word, and I don't know why 4,000 people would come look at these slaves, these poor, tortured slaves. Um, I questioned maybe it was because some of them didn't believe Delphine was capable of such things, or just, it was 1836 and they didn't have anything else better to do than go look? Was it 1836? 1834. Sorry. Not, it's not like there was plasma screen TVs two years later, but maybe they just didn't have anything else interesting going on. I'm not sure why that many people would turn out to look at poor tortured slaves, but it happened. So several weeks later, two of the slaves rescued from the home had died and numerous bodies were found on the grounds of the mansion. So this had been something that had been obviously going on for quite some time and they also found the body of a child well the the remains of a child which they're assuming was leah um and it was rumored that she was buried on the property so i guess it makes sense that her body would be body would be buried there and also back then a lot of people just kind of handled their own funeral situation so it probably wasn't that weird but they did find several bodies on the property um, so after the fire, it is believed that Delphine avoided capture um, by the mob violence. She traveled by Schooner to Mobile, Alabama, and hitched a ride to Paris. And not much is known about her life after that. So on top of that, though, how she died is unknown. They're not even sure of the date that she died. Um, there's a highly unsubstantiated rumor that she was killed in 1888 in France during a boar hunting accident weird, but not true. In the late 1930s, an old cracked copper plate was found in a cemetery and it stated in French, but like I said, I can't read French out loud. It sounds awful. So I bet I can read it in my brain. Um, the plate said, Madame LaLaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarty, died in Paris, December 7th, 1842 at the age of six blank. That part of the plaque is broken off and missing, which is why I say a lot of people believe that she died at the age of 62 and yeah 
So, sorry, this was a little caveat that I had written underneath that. So, of course, I read that out loud and then didn't read this part like I had directed myself to. According to French archives in Paris, Delphine died on December 7th, so the date's right, in 1849 at the age of 62. They think that one's more correct. That coincides with the other, the birth date that was given earlier, and, you know, six, she would have been 62 at the time had she had that date and died in 1849. So more people believe that than the plaque in New Orleans. It, they might have gotten their date wrong. So... Yeah. After 1945, accounts of the LaLaurie slaves become more explicit. Um, there's some books that are written that really kind of make it more than it is. They're pulling an American horror story, like going off this crazy, insane tale and then taking it like two steps. Well, in this case, like three steps further and just saying crazy, like tacking on their own spin of like this urban legend. So they know that Delphine LaLaurie was actually terrible and she did these terrible things, but people always like to try to make it more gruesome to sell another book or write another movie or make another TV show about her, which there are so many. If you even just go on the Wikipedia page and look at in modern history, like popular references section, there's a ton of them just because, I mean, she's fascinating and what she did was awful and just disgusting and yeah, people find her fascinating, and I, I have to agree, I do too, but I'm not here to tell lies and jazz this up for anybody. I'm here to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, and I'm not here to jazz her up more than she is. So just a, a brief thing about this book that was written in 1946. Um, it alleged that Laurie had a sadistic appetite that seemed never appeased until she had inflicted on one or more of her black servitors some hideous form of torture and claimed that those who responded to the 1834 fire had found male slaves stark naked, chained to a wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots. Others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging on by shreds, their lips sewn together, intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waist. There, they, there were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted in to stir their brains. So the person who wrote this book, Delavine, her name is Jean Delavine, she didn't cite any of the sources for any of these claims, and they were not supported by any other primary sources. So, selling books, doing it, trying her best. Um, lastly, the house is kind of interesting. So, the house commonly referred to as the LaLaurie Mansion or the Haunted House isn't... It's where the house was, but it's not the actual house, because the actual New Orleans home really doesn't even exist anymore as we said earlier after that fire first of all there was a fire and second of all you know when the crowd had found out what was going on that place was ransacked and destroyed so any form of that house probably isn't even realistic anymore um so when Delphine LaLaurie bought that house in 1831 a house was already under construction and finished for LaLaurie that house was burned down by the mob in 1834 and remained ruined for like four more years before it was rebuilt in 1838 and that's the house you see now so in the past this house has a crazy history and i'm surprised that half these things were there just so nonchalantly um 
you'd think, well, I guess if they're trying to forget what happened there, then this one makes sense. But you'd think a house, which if you've ever seen the La Lurie Mansion, it's beautiful. At least the recreation of it, like what was re- rebuilt from it, is gorgeous. Um, but it has a great, well, not a great history, but it has, I'm trying to think of the word, a rich history. It's not good history, but it's still a historical site. Um, in the past, that building has been a public high school, a conservatory for music, an apartment building, a refuge for long- young delinquents, a bar, a furniture store, and a luxury apartment building. And in April of 2007, the house was bought by Nicolas Cage, which flashback to Robert Hansen in his movie. He must have bought it with all that frozen ground money, except I don't know when that, <laughs> I don't know when that movie came out, so I can't say that for sure. Um, but then he sold it in 2009 as part of a bank foreclosure. So it must not have been, well, it could have been the frozen ground money. <laughs> Probably ran out faster than we thought it did, especially if that movie's full free on Amazon. And that, my friends, is the story of Delphine LaLaurie and her awful, awful things that she did in the past. So with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. Um, hopefully your Tuesday went splendidly and, uh, take a sip of wine for me. Why not? I'm about to as well. So cheers. Enjoy your true crime Tuesday. What's left of it whenever you listen to this and I'll catch you on the next time.